This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. With six months of the year in the books, this is a natural time to reflect on key trends driving market activity around the world. My guest today is Katie Koch, a senior investment professional with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Katie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you recently convened the Fundamental Equity Strategy Group, investment professionals from around the world, and talked about trends driving the marketplace. We're going to talk a little bit about those trends today. Let's start with the U.S. economy. Sure. After six years of performance, strong performance, a lot of people, including our clients, are starting to question valuations. What do you think? You know, U.S. equity markets are up about 240% since the trough in 2009. And in addition to that, they're in the 99th percentile of their valuation. So it's very natural for investors to feel like markets have run too much. And from our vantage point, we actually went into 2015 the least bullish we've ever been on U.S. equities since 2009. And actually, that's still our view. We think overall market returns from U.S. equities are going to be quite muted. However, we think the environment's going to be really rich for stock selection. So selectively, bottom-up, you know, we do find some opportunities. I would say overall, however, we are more positive on markets outside the U.S., such as Europe and Japan. Let's talk about Europe for a second. Greece just held its referendum and the results are in. What does a no vote mean for the markets and how do you see the Greek situation playing out? For a country that's only one-third of 1% of global GDP, the Greeks are definitely getting their fair share of headlines. And actually, one of my favorite observations about the current debt situation in Greece came from Ian Bremmer. He compared the situation to an NBA game in that it's really not worth watching it to the last two minutes. But now Except we're in... you never know when the last two minutes are. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> true. Greece, yeah. And now we're, uh, now we're in double overtime. So people are, are watching very intently about what's going to happen from here. So as you mentioned, there was a referendum on austerity. The vote was no, which basically means the Greeks were unwilling to agree to all the austerity measures as a condition for remaining in the euro. So the question does remain here, though, can a revised agreement be reached? Is there going to be a Grexit or, or no Grexit? And we would humbly admit here that the range of outcomes is very wide. And on the equity team, we don't really think we have a unique edge in making political predictions. All of that being said, under either scenario, we expect really choppy markets and pick up in volatility. However, longer term, we think European equity markets look really attractive for a number of reasons. First, unlike in 2012, European sovereign debt crisis, there's actually limited risk of contagion here. So let me spell it out a little bit. 80% of Greek sovereign debt is actually now held by the official sector. Point two, Greek banks are very isolated. So European banks are obviously much better capitalized now, but also they themselves don't have exposure to Greek banks, unlike four or five years ago. In terms of real exposure through revenues and sales, Greece represents only a third of 1% of sales of European ex-Greece companies. So the contagion risk, in our view, is very limited. And perhaps the, the most important is that the ECB is very committed to using QE here. It only started earnest in March, and there is a lot of room to go. That was a very powerful elixir over the last six years for U.S. equity markets, and it's going to be similarly powerful, in our view, in driving European equity markets higher over the long term. And then finally, I, I just want to make the point that the fundamentals in Europe beyond Greece are, are actually quite sound. The broad European economy is accelerating, and earnings continue to look 
pretty decent for European corporates. We've been saying for a very long time that these companies have a lot of operating leverage. They're just missing revenues. And as end-demand markets have firmed up for European corporates, both in the core of Europe as well as the U.S., the revenue has come through and earnings are being lifted. So near-term choppy, managing the volatility, but long-term still very positive on European equity markets. You mentioned Japan. Mm -hmm. Japan's been a, a tough story for a long time yeah. for investors, but things seem to have changed and there's a little traction there. What do you think about the investment opportunities right now in Japan? We're really optimistic about equity return potential out of Japan, and I highlight three reasons there as well. The first is, like Europe, you have a central bank that's in an easing posture that can drive equity markets higher. The second is that most of the buying of Japanese shares, and in fact almost all of it over the last couple of years, has actually been buying by foreigners. But this year, we're starting to see the domestic buyer come to the market. It's been very well announced that the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, as part of their easing policies, buying equity. In addition, GPIF, which is a $1.1 trillion pension fund, it's the government pension fund of Japan, is coming to the market to buy equities. Together, those institutions are going to do about $100 billion of equity buying. But very notably, we've spoken a lot to our team on the ground in Tokyo, and they're starting to see the retail buyer come back to the market. So there's some pull through there to the retail buyer. And that domestic buyer, we think, can help drive markets higher. And then the last point I would make on Japan, and this is actually the most profound and the most important one for us as equity investors, is that there's been a significant improvement in corporate governance across Japan. So under Prime Minister Abe's leadership, he said that in order to revitalize Japan, one of the things that he wants to do is focus on corporate profitability. And on the back of that, the new governance code that's coming out in Japan has stated starting this month, June of, of 2015, ISS, which is the service that votes proxies for corporates around the world, in Japan, ISS has been given permission to vote against management of companies, CEOs, and chairmen who are not able to achieve at least a 5% ROE. So lo and behold, that's really changing management behavior in Japan. And when we're doing our company meetings, we're starting to see companies that never talked about ROE or return on equity before really putting out targets and giving us very specific steps as to how they're going to achieve higher levels of profitability. And if you look at the Japanese market in the 10 years up to 2013, return on equity was only about 6% versus the world average at 12%. Over the last couple of years, the return on equity in Japan has lifted by about a third, while the developed market average has actually fallen. So here you're seeing very tangible evidence of the pickup and profitability of the corporate sector. We take those three things together, an easing central bank, domestic buyer coming to the market, and uh, stronger corporate profitability, the picture looks pretty attractive to us in Japan. Going back to the US, the lower energy prices and a generally just improving economy, lower unemployment rate, typically would mean higher consumption rates. We haven't seen dramatic growth in consumption here in the U.S. Are you bullish on the consumer, or should we be expecting to see an uptick at some point, or is this just the new status quo? We actually are pretty constructive on the U.S. consumer, so we, we should unpack it a little bit because I recognize that there's been some bad data on the U.S. consumer coming out this year. Where there actually is deflationary pressure for the U.S. consumer is in apparel. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason that you've seen deflationary pressure there is because of online retailing, which means that there's transparency in prices and people are demanding lower price points. 
The second reason that there's been deflationary pressure there is something called uh, fast retail, which is basically getting apparel very quickly from the runway into the hands of the consumers, mostly the millennials in this instance, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about. Um, and that's done through really optimizing supply chains, et cetera. But overall, you've seen a lot of price compression in the apparel space. However, if we put that aside, we actually still see pockets of resilience in other parts of the U.S. consumer. And in fact, against a backdrop of, of higher savings, so the savings rate for U.S. consumers is somewhere in the mid-single digits. And what we're seeing is a much smarter, we would call kind of healthier U.S. consumer that's being much more discriminating about how they're going to spend their consumer dollars. We've tilted our portfolios to benefit from that trend. So we like online retailers, for example. We also see strong spending in areas like restaurants and entertainment as U.S. consumers are willing to spend for experiences. So overall, there is strength in the consumer, but it's going to be a healthier, smarter consumer, and you have to be selective about how to play that. So from an investment perspective, you mentioned the millennial generation in terms of how they spend their money, how they use technology. Are they different? Are we really going to see different behavior out of this generation? And what does it mean for investors? This rise of the millennials is going to have a profound impact on the way that economies develop and the way that corporates need to position themselves. So taking a step back, this is obviously a, a topic that Goldman Sachs has written about extensively, and millennials means the cohort of people between the ages of 15 and 35, and there's 92 million of them. So as a starting point, there's just a, it's a large group of people. And by the way, as an aside, I um, found out by reading that research and working on this that I actually am a millennial because I was born in 1980. And um, I was saying that to one of my analysts who observed back to me, oh, yeah, that's right. You're probably a really, really old millennial. So I've a fake millennial. A fake millennial. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna self-identify instead as a really young generation Xer. But in all seriousness, I mean this is, as I said, a very profound trend. What we're observing from an investment perspective is that this is going to be very important for consumer spending. So millennials are coming into their prime spending years. We expect, even on a, a next five-year view, that the increase in spending from that cohort is going to be somewhere in the magnitude of about 2 to 5 percent, whereas baby boomers are actually going to be spending less aggregate dollars. So we start you know, thinking a lot about what does this generation care about, what are the types of things that they could, in fact, spend money on. And then we, again, are looking to benefit from some of those trends through the portfolio. There's two defining markers of this generation. The first is that, of course, they are tech savvy, but the second is that they are commanding weaker incomes because of growing up and having most of their professional life in the global financial crisis. Now, from an investment perspective, we observe that the combination of these two factors means they prefer access over ownership, and this has given rise to the concept of the shared economy and trends like booking a car on demand rather than owning one and paying to stay in someone else's apartment rather than in a corporate hotel. Um, and you can extend that example in many different ways. And we are very focused on bottom-up finding the companies that will benefit from the trend. Okay, let's move on to China where we're seeing a lot of ups and downs, even more perhaps than in uh, Europe in the markets. Mm -hmm. What do you think is behind the recent volatility in China and where might we go from here? 
Yeah, we've been very vocal about our concerns of over-exuberance in Chinese equity markets over the last several months. So I'd say we've been unsurprised about the recent reversal in fortunes of Chinese equity markets, but probably a bit surprised by both the volatility as well as the magnitude of the sell-off. So just to recap, the Chinese local market was up 120% to its recent peak. And then in the last three plus weeks, we've seen a sell-off in the magnitude of 25%. So to your point, these are very big moves. For us, the reason that we have been bearish on the outlook for Chinese equities over the last couple of months, and the reason we continue to be bearish, uh, is that there appears to us to be a very big disconnect between where the government, for example, is reporting growth and where we actually perceive to be growth, the growth on the ground from a real economic indicator standpoint. So just walking through that a bit, the government's reporting that GDP in China has slowed to a level of about 7%. But I spent a lot of time in China. My colleagues spent a lot of time in China. And when you're on the ground there, it doesn't really feel like a 7% growth economy. We also follow what we call real economic indicators in China. So we look at electricity consumption and rail cargo. Electricity consumption has essentially flatlined. As I said, we follow rail cargo, and that's gone negative. In fact, even more negative than it was during the financial crisis. So we put those pieces of the puzzle together. And to us, it feels like there's actually a deceleration of growth in China, or at least in the manufacturing sector in China, which is an important part of the economy. So that's all giving us pause. And then at the same time, you also see this very big disconnect between fundamentals and performance just within the equity markets. Let me give you an example of some odd performance in individual companies. President Xi came out a couple of months ago, very supportive about the future of soccer in China. Um, he wants China to rise to be a dominant soccer country. And um, we wish them all the luck in the world. They probably will be very successful at that. But we were a little bit worried to see that companies with very tangential relationships to soccer were up anywhere between 10 to 20 percent on the day of that announcement. That seems disconnected from fundamentals to us. Then there's the question of who is actually active in the equity markets, who's the buyer here. We would observe that there's more than 4 million accounts being opened every week in China. The exuberance is widespread across the retail investor, and they're not always driven by fundamentals, and they're not always sticky money. And then final point I want to make is how those retail investors have been buying Chinese equities, which is a huge amount of buying happening on margin. So margin buying only became legal in China in the last couple of years. And now margin and it's really taken off. Yeah. yeah, it's it's taken off tremendously. And now margin buying as a percentage of the market cap is higher in China than it is in the US, Australia, Japan, et cetera. So that definitely gives us pause. So the question obviously is what happens from here? We've had somewhat of a correction. Will there be more of a correction? And what I would say here, and maybe this doesn't sound very brave, but I think it's really tough to predict because the government is very committed to supporting the markets because of the wealth effect. Certainly, we wouldn't want to be in a position to bet against the Chinese government. And also, we think China is an important place for clients to have capital invested over the long term. But what we would say here is that this is the moment to be highly selective in how to build up your China exposure. So we would favor China eight share companies over China A share companies. We would avoid state-owned enterprises, which are run in the interest of the government rather than the shareholder. So we are very underweight those types of companies. Things that we like would be stock exchanges in China. And those would be companies that are basically monopolistic highly cash flow generative, and they're actually beneficiaries of the high trading volume. And then finally, we also like select consumer companies 
where consumers have a lot of brand affinity for those specific companies and therefore they have pricing power. So okay to have some exposure there, but you wanna be positioned for the long term and you really gotta be highly selective. So you cut your teeth on emerging markets mm -hmm. more generally. What do you think about some of those markets today? Any thoughts about some of the opportunities out there for investors now? So when we talk about emerging markets with our clients, we advise them to do three things. The first is that we think that they should have broad exposure to emerging markets as a theme. The simple reason for that is it gives them exposure to a higher growth area over the long term at pretty attractive valuations because emerging market equity valuations currently are at a 30% discount to the US and a 10% discount to their own history. So growth at good valuation is a good reason to have a strategic allocation to emerging markets. Second, we also advise our clients to take an active approach to investing in these countries. We think that the benchmark for emerging markets is severely flawed. First of all, it is very overexposed to the mega cap space. It's dominated about 40% of the index is in those state-owned enterprises, again, focused on the needs of the government and not the shareholder. It's overexposed to sectors like energy and underexposed to sustainable growth stories like the emerging consumer. So point two, get active in emerging markets. And then finally, and I'm certainly going to admit my biases here, but we also think that investors would be well served to invest with managers that are focused on individual bottom-up stock selection. We're doing a lot of the heavy lifting to identify companies that can earn a return on capital that's in excess of the corporate average. And when we do that and we apply that lens in a disciplined way, we ultimately arrive at a portfolio that has half the exposure off the benchmark and 40% of it in the small and mid-cap space, and it's tilted to what we think are much more sustainable growth stories. In the fixed income markets, Katie, we've been thinking and talking about the eventual rise in interest rates for a while now. And every day, every month, it seems like it's getting a little bit closer. How do you think about what will eventually happen here in the U.S. and the rise in interest rates in terms of equity investments? So we uh, think that, yes, rates are likely to rise in the next couple of months. We're encouraged by the fact that equities have tended to outperform other asset classes when rates rise slowly off of low levels, and they do it because the backdrop of growth is actually reasonably strong, hence the central bank can start to raise rates. So equities have actually done okay in that environment, and we're encouraged by that. What we would also emphasize and continue to emphasize to our clients is in that environment, selectivity at the individual company level is going to be exceptionally important because it's going to create a much sharper line between winners and losers. And so we're really focused on investing and tilting the portfolios towards companies that can do well in a rising rate environment, for example, like banks and insurance companies. And we are taking underweight positions in companies that would be hurt in that environment, like REITs, for example, or utilities. M&A is at very high levels and has been over the past 18, 24 months. That's helped fuel equity markets as valuations get pushed higher on acquisitions or, or the, the prospect of acquisitions. Do you expect that trend to continue and help propel equity markets? Yes, I think the boom in M&A will continue against a backdrop of benign global growth and low financing costs. Uniquely in this M&A cycle, 
acquiring companies have actually seen a boost in their stock price. That is actually quite unique to this cycle. And what that's telling us is that CEOs are getting a very strong message, particularly in the US and Europe, to go after growth, to get access to new markets and new technologies. And we think that will continue because growth is scarce. Now, obviously, the target companies have also seen significant share price appreciation, and we have been fortunate to own many of the targets, particularly in the healthcare as well as the technology sector. And while we're long-term investors um, in these businesses and we own them and look to realize significant value over time, sometimes corporate activity can unlock that value sooner. It's just another demonstration of the inherent value in the names that we choose to own for our clients. Okay, so a last question. We sort of covered the world here, but big picture, the rest of the year, what do you think about global equity markets and what do you think we'll be seeing as particularly as rates rise here in the U.S.? So lacking the proverbial crystal ball, but I'll try and give my best answer. We are um, reasonably optimistic that we're going to get high single-digit returns from global equity markets. That's what we said going into the year. That continues to be our view. And we think that the ability for active managers to add meaningful alpha on the top of that continues to be very strong. And we're already seeing early signs of that. So we think investors should continue to maintain their holdings in equities for the remainder of the year. And again, get more active to help them navigate an environment that could be dislocating when rates start to rise. That's great. Katie, thank you very much for joining. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on July 6, 2015. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.